Well, Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5 is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And last week we kicked off this uh, study in the Sermon on the Mount, which spans three chapters in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And last week I tried to show you, and, and hopefully I did, hopefully I compelled you to believe that this sermon is for us today. That, that these words of Christ are for us to receive them today. Though the standards laid forth in this sermon, and we looked at it last week, some of them are very high, very lofty. In fact, I argued that Jesus, what he lays down here, is the highest standard of morality that's ever been given, that's ever been handed down. Nevertheless, it is Christ's intention that we would obey his commandments. It is the fact that the standards are so high that certain believers throughout church history have tried to find a loophole, a loophole that would let them out. Uh, how is there a way that this is not authoritative in my life, that this doesn't apply to me, that, that somehow I can find a way to avoid having to obey the commands of Christ in this passage. But as I showed last week, there are no loopholes. Christ, as King of kings and Lord of lords, delivers his law, his word for his covenant people in this passage. And he does it, in fact, expecting us to obey his word. And we concluded last week by, by looking at how that this for us highlights the absolute necessity of being born again by the Spirit of God. Because in our own strength, in our own efforts, in our flesh, this is impossible. There is no humanly possible way that we could keep this law and this standard if it was up to us. But the fact is that it is not up to us. That we must be born again and filled with God's spirit. That we must receive a new heart and new desires and a new spirit which enables us, empowers us through grace to fulfill the law of God. John chapter 3, Jesus says it this way, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. The, the absolute necessity of the new birth. I can't think of a more miserable experience of trying to live the, the Christian life without being born again. It would be the most miserable of experiences to, to live the Christian life without the power of God. To fail constantly without having his help and having his aid. This is why Paul in Galatians 2.20 says that I have been crucified with Christ. My flesh has been laid down. I have crucified, been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In our flesh it is impossible, but with Christ living with us, with God, all things are possible. And so this morning we turn our attention 
to the introduction of the sermon, which is commonly known as the Beatitudes. So Matthew chapter 5, we're going to read this whole section, this whole introduction, and then we're going to focus in here this morning on the first of the Beatitudes. But again, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he had sat down, his disciples came to them, came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. Speak to us today. Lord, give us a glimpse of who you are, a glimpse of your glory this morning. Lord, as we study your word, that you would continually reveal yourself to us, illuminate your revelation. Lord, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. Lord, the cares of this life try as they might to drown out and to choke out your voice. Lord, we've set aside this moment, this this time on your day, the Lord's day. Lord, we've set it aside as sacred to meet with you. That we might set aside the cares and and the noise that you would speak to us. Lord, we've gathered here in faith today. We pray that you would do what only you can do. That you would work in our hearts and that you would work in our souls and that you would work deeply in us this morning. Change us, God. Conform us into the image of your son. That the world would see in us, your people, a glimpse of the God that we serve. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I went back and forth uh, trying to decide whether to preach one sermon on the Beatitudes or to take each one as a sermon. And after I began to, to look at it more closely and And to study it more deeply, I realized that to to only spend one week on this passage would be robbing you of some incredible truth. And and I didn't want to do that. And and then I just said, what's the hurry? What's the rush? You know, we'll just take our time and let the Lord speak to us. It's on this passage of Scripture, the Beatitudes, that the 20th century 
uh, great theologian John Stott, he said this. He said, the more we explore the implications of this passage of the Beatitudes, the more seems to remain unexplored. Their wealth is inexhaustible and that we cannot plumb their depths, end quote. And so that's what we're going to attempt to do over the next several weeks. Uh, Of course, next week we'll take a break for the missions conference and then we'll resume the following week with the Beatitudes. We're going to plumb these depths. We're going to discover this wealth that is inexhaustible. And we're going to look at living a life that is blessed. What a great way to start a new year. How do we live a blessed life? Here Jesus, the word made flesh, God among us, here he gives us the key to living a life that is blessed. I think we all would say that's the kind of life we want to live. Amen? A blessed life. If the opposite, the antithesis of a blessed life is a cursed life, I want to be found living a blessed life. And so let's look at this word blessed. The word beatitude, where does this word come from? Well, this word beatitude comes from the Latin word for blessed, which is the Latin word beati. And so the the reason this is called the beatitudes is because uh, it's from that heritage of the Latin language and the Latin word beati. And so it... In each one of these, in each section, Jesus starts with saying, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And so for us to understand this passage and then to to look at our verse today in verse 3, we must spend some time looking at this word blessed. And sometimes we might be tempted to have the wrong idea about what this word means. What does this word mean to be blessed? Well, first I have to say that this word blessed is not a blank slate that we can import whatever meaning we want into it. And I would admit that my generation is really bad at doing that. We are really bad at importing our definitions of words into the Bible. We don't get to do that. We don't get to define the words. God defines the words for us. But my generation says things like this. What does this mean to you? Have you been in a Bible study where that question was asked? What does this mean to you? And then even other people say, well, what this means to me is. As if we are somehow the authority over the word of God. We we don't realize the subtlety of what we are saying with statements like that. Listen, when we come to the word of God, we are not staring at a Picasso. This is not abstract art. This is holy writ. This is divine truth. These things have objective meanings. Where this is really happening in a, in a terrible way right now, 
within Western culture and, and in, our church, in, in the, the churches of Western culture is with the word love. People have no idea what that word means. People don't look to God's definition that he provides for us in the word of God. And they import their definition and the fallen culture's definition of it. And it perverts the scripture when we do that. And we likewise can do the same with the word blessed. Now certainly all of us will have different applications for the truth. And we will apply the truth of God's word in varying ways. So the, the scripture, the truth of the word of God will apply to a young child differently than it would to a husband and a father. There will be different applications, but the meaning and the truth does not change. We need to realize that first and foremost. We don't get to define what the word blessed means. It's not subjective. It is objective. Number two, the word blessed does not mean free from hardship, freedom of hardship, or conflict, or suffering. To be blessed does not mean that you will never endure a hardship in your life. That you will sort of, you know, float through life on cloud nine and you'll just go through life, you know, hitting all the green lights. You never, you know, you get on 410 and the traffic parts like the Red Sea and you just go through on dry land, you know. That's not what the word blessed means. It doesn't mean you will never have hardship. It doesn't mean you will never have conflict. It doesn't mean that you will never suffer. And it doesn't mean that you will never have pain. Well, how can I say that? Well, could, could we not say that the most blessed person who ever lived was the Lord Jesus? Could we not say that the person who endured the most suffering in this life was also the Lord Jesus? These things are not mutually exclusive. Let, let me also point to you the fact that Jesus ends this passage on blessing with saying that there's a special blessing for those, verse 10, who are persecuted. Verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Rejoice and be glad. So, so, the blessing is not an absence of suffering, an absence of hardship, an absence of pain. No, that's not what blessing is. So then what is the blessing? What is this blessing that Jesus pronounces? Well, I know this might sound shocking to you because for some reason we're always looking for some sort of like really out there, you know, aha, wow, I never thought of that kind of stuff. L listen, the blessing is the second half of the sentence. It's not complicated. Look at it, verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What's the blessing for being poor in spirit? The kingdom of heaven. The, the, the second half of the verse is the blessing that is applied to that situation. So theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They will be comforted. They will be filled. They will inherit the earth. 
Theirs again is the kingdom of heaven. They will see God. They will see mercy, receive mercy. This is the blessing. This is the blessing. I also want to point your attention to the fact that the blessing is not a promise for a future reality, but the blessing is a promise of a present reality. It is blessed are, not blessed will be. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So those who possess and and cultivate these traits, you are blessed of God. And what what this describes, this list that Jesus begins with on the Sermon on the Mount, his introduction, these describe for us the character traits of a true born-again believer. This is who Jesus is describing, his disciples, his followers. He's laying out for us who we are to be as a follower of Jesus. It describes the the character traits. And and this is, again, the, the same way that the apostles, when they begin to write their New Testament letters, they start with who we are in Christ. The greatest example of this, of course, is the book of Ephesians. This is who we are. Before he starts talking about what we do and how we live, he first starts talking about who we are. Because we can't do all the other stuff if we are not this. If we haven't been changed, if our minds haven't been renewed, if we haven't been filled with the Spirit of God, truly if we are not born again, We are not this, and therefore we cannot keep his commandments. So he's not describing some some super saint, some super apostle. No, he's describing the everyday Christian. And what that means is that these traits are for all of us. This is for all of us. The, The greatest, one of the greatest Uh, tragedies in Christendom, in the the Christian faith, was the great divide that came into the church between the clergy and the laity. That that somehow there's a a different class of, of believer, a different class of Christian. That there's a higher class of the the clerical, the, the clergy, and they're really close to God, and they're really holy, and They live at the church and they wear special funny clothes and funny hats and they never get married because, you know, that would be bad. And and, and they're super holy and so they live and serve God and follow God. And the rest of us, we, we just have no chance. That's a fallacy. You don't find that in scripture anywhere. In fact, all of the New Testament is directed to the everyday believer, which The Bible calls us saints. You are a saint in Christ. Set apart from the world for God's own special purpose. Filled with his spirit. Endowed with new heart, new desires, and new power to live for him. You're not like the world. You're not like 
the people who live in darkness. That there's no class distinctions within the Christian faith. So these traits are for all of us. All of us are called to be poor in spirit, to mourn, to be meek, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be merciful, to be pure in heart, to be peacemakers. And if the time would come to even be persecuted for the sake of Christ. These are for all of us. And then also all of these are for all of us. I don't get to pick and choose. It's not just that, oh, his personality is more merciful or her personality is more weak, so it's easier for her to be meek. No, 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 no. If you're thinking that, you've missed the whole point. You see, personality, natural inclinations are just that. They are natural. But we're not talking about natural living. We're talking about supernatural living. We're talking about living that's empowered by the Spirit of God. And so all of us are called to live in this way, empowered by the Spirit of God, with all of these characteristics applying to each of us. I don't get to pick and choose. In fact, if there's an area in which I find myself falling short, I need to press in desire and prayer and and asking God to birth these as a fruit of the Spirit in my life. And here we see in this list Christ's own description of what every Christian ought to be. What every Christian ought to be. And he, as the King of kings and Lord of lords, has every right to lay down those sort of oughts in our lives. And so this brings us here to our verse this morning, verse number three, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Having now properly understood the blessing, we can move to this second part looking at what it means to be poor in spirit. Now, I think that we could all agree that typically in our mind, poverty and blessing don't belong in the same sentence. When we think of someone who is blessed, we don't obviously, uh, you know, automatically think of someone who is impoverished. Unfortunately, when we think of blessing... We, in Western culture, too often think of material blessings. And I don't have, I, I, I thank God for material blessings. I, I, I was trained as a child, and I still practice this as an adult. Before I even eat my food, I thank God for the blessing. So I thank God for material blessings. Material blessings are not something that we should be ashamed of, but they should be rightly stewarded. But again, this shows our misconception when we can't even hold in in the same sentence poverty and blessing. We we say these things don't even go together and it just shows we, we we need some more teaching, we need some more understanding on both blessing and poverty, what's being talked about here. But notice here, Jesus doesn't simply say, blessed are the poor. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
Jesus is not talking about financial poverty. He's not saying, blessed are you when you go to HEB and your card is declined. That's not what he's saying. There's a specific kind of poverty that he has in mind. Poor in spirit. Well, what does this mean? Well, let's look at poverty. What does poverty mean? Poverty means to be in lack. To be impoverished means that you are in need. And to be poor in spirit then is to be someone who recognizes their great spiritual need. Someone who is poor in spirit recognizes that they are a needy person spiritually. It means that you recognize, as Isaiah says, that your righteousness is as filthy rags. To be poor in spirit means that we know and that we see that even on our best day that we have failed God. And that we have failed to live up to his righteous and holy standards. To be poor in spirit is to be the opposite of the Pharisees who boasted in their personal righteousness. Flip over with me to Luke chapter 18. I'm going to show you a parable that Jesus gave that depicts the contrast between someone who is self-righteous and someone who is poor in spirit. Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. It says, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That is the opposite of poor in spirit. Jesus said two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. That means declared righteous rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. To be poor in spirit is the opposite of the Pharisee, someone who boasts in and trusts in their own personal righteousness. This is also the exact opposite of the spirit that's at work in our day, in our culture. Our culture is a culture of self-sufficiency, self-reliance, self-confidence.
self-confidence, self-assertiveness. And to be poor in spirit is the antithesis of the spirit at work in our culture. And poor in spirit is where we all begin our walk with the Lord. It's not an accident that Jesus puts this right here at the front. Entrance into the kingdom is only granted to those who feel this great spiritual need and look to Christ alone as the one who can and will supply that need. There is no other way into the kingdom of God. This is why Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And though in life we will grow in grace and we will grow in sanctification and we will all by the grace of God grow in holiness and we will see sin put to death in our lives, we must never lose this poverty of spirit before God. Because anything that happens in my life that is of spiritual value, we must recognize it is all due to him. It is all because of him and his grace. I cannot take credit for anything in my life. It is all of grace. And so we never lose this poverty of spirit before God. It is this poverty of spirit that causes one to cling so closely and tightly to the cross of Christ. It is absolutely necessary that we see in this first beatitude the entire gospel message encapsulated. In this beatitude is salvation, not by works, but by grace. It is not those who work very hard who will inherit the kingdom of heaven. It is not those who perfect their self-righteousness who will inherit the kingdom of heaven. It is not those who are just slightly or even much more better than everybody else in our own eyes who will inherit the kingdom of heaven. No, it is those who are poor in spirit, who recognize their poverty before God, who receive his kingdom. Dear friend, have you felt this poverty of spirit? Have you come to face, have you come face to face with your own inability, with your own weakness in spiritual matters? Have you recognized your spiritual bankruptcy before holy God? If you have, if you've seen that, you are blessed because most people don't see that. Most people are under the delusion that they are a good person. That though they are not perfect, nobody's perfect. They are better than most. They grade themselves on a curve. You see, that's what that Pharisee was doing. He was grading himself on the curve. He was looking at the tax collector. He was looking at the adulterer. He's saying, I'm not like these people. But you know who he wasn't really looking at? Jesus. Jesus is the data point that flattens the curve. 
If you've left Jesus out of your equation, if you've left God out of your equation, yeah, you can, you can rank yourself compared to others. But the moment you look to God, you don't see life that way anymore. It's not the Pharisees who enter the kingdom of God. Though they think they have merited it by their own righteousness, no, it is given to the opposite. The kingdom is given to those who see their own righteousness as those filthy rags. Theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. There is none in the kingdom who are not poor in spirit. Examples abound in the Bible that we could turn to of illustrations for those who are poor in spirit. We could look to David when he is caught in his sin and confronted in his sin and the prophet Nathan comes to him and says, you are the man, you are the one who has committed this great and heinous sin before God. David rends his clothes, David repents, David falls on his knees. Psalm 51, this great prayer of repentance towards God. David was poor in spirit. We see an example of this in Peter. This great miracle that Jesus performs that Peter sees. When, when Jesus performs this miracle, Peter gets a glimpse of who Jesus is. And Peter doesn't think, hey, wow, Jesus called me. Jesus chose me. I must be something. I must be something special. No, when, when, when Peter sees who Jesus really is, it says, the Bible says that he falls down on his knees. And he cries out, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O oh, Lord. I think the, the greatest example of this, probably the, the most explicit description of this type of experience is Isaiah chapter 6. I'm going to flip over there quickly. It's a very familiar passage, but I'm not going to take time to expound it, but we'll just read it this morning. Isaiah chapter 6. I want to point out to you that this is the sixth chapter of Isaiah, that Isaiah has already been a prophet for six, for, for five chapters. So it's not like he was some Yehu, it's not like he was some worldly person. He, he's a prophet of God. Yet here he has a profoundly transformative experience. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord. This, this is, if we could only see the Lord. To see the Lord is to never be the same again. Is to be marked, is to be changed John, writing in his gospel, John chapter 12, 44, John tells us that the person that Isaiah saw on, when he saw the Lord seated on the throne, 
was none other than Jesus Christ. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. These are flaming angels. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. To get a glimpse of just of the slightest revelation of who God is in his holiness, in his righteousness, in his exalted glory as King of kings and Lord of lords, sovereign over all creation, sovereign over all the universe. And to see yourself in light of him is to say, woe is me. I am lost I am sinful, I am unclean, I am unworthy. And as Paul put it, I am the chief of sinners. Think about this. Paul the apostle, arguably the greatest apostle, calls himself the chief of sinners. Why is that? Because the closer you get to Christ, the more you truly see who you really are. It is those who are far from Christ who think they are wonderful and great. It is those who are far from Christ who are deluded with ideas of self-righteousness. It is those who are close to Christ who recognize who they are and their poverty of spirit, and the fact that they have nothing to offer God, but that he, God for his own, because of his own love and his own grace and his own mercy has condescended from heaven to earth to die to redeem us. To produce within us this poverty of spirit that we, like Peter, could say, I am a sinful man, O oh Lord. So the question for all of us this morning is, are you poor in spirit? The kingdom only belongs to those who are poor in spirit. If you have never felt this poverty of spirit in the presence of God, it is proof that you have never caught a true glimpse of God. To say, oh God, if it were not for you, I am hopelessly lost. God, without you, I am a beggar. This is what worship, true worship, is designed to do. It's designed to exalt God to lift him up, 
to portray him before our eyes as holy, as glorious, as righteous, so that we would come into, like Isaiah, into the sanctuary and that we would behold his holiness and that it would produce in our hearts a poverty of spirit. It would, as we worship God, rid us and eradicate us and remove from us every last bit of self-righteousness. That's what worship, true worship, is designed to do. It's, it's not just for us to, you know, enjoy a few moments to, to warm up the crowd before the preacher comes on. It's to exalt God before our eyes. That we would be changed as we behold his glory. So how do you become poor in spirit? How, do you, how, how can you cultivate this in your own life? Well, let me tell you, it's not by trying harder. It's not by doing this or doing that. It's not by measuring your progress. Well, I'm, I'm 2% more poor in spirit today, and I can tell by looking at everybody else that I'm advancing. No, in fact, it's the exact opposite. Get your eyes off of yourself and fix your gaze upon Christ. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. His glory, his power, his dominion, his perfection, his love, his grace, his mercy, his holiness, his sacrifice for sinners. Look to Christ. And look to Christ for salvation as he is the only one who can meet our great spiritual need. You will not find your great spiritual need met in some self-promoting guru. You will not find it in the self-help section. You will not find it through education. You will not find it through wealth. You will only find the one who can meet your great spiritual need. It is only found at the foot of the cross of Christ. Look to Christ. There's a great old hymn called Rock of Ages. And in that hymn is this line, Nothing in my hand I bring, Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress, Helpless, I look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the mountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That is poverty of spirit. And those who have it are truly blessed. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, this is designed to produce in us a poverty of spirit. None of us is worthy to participate in the work of redemption. We are all unworthy. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God, in his love and in his mercy, 
welcomes us to the table, welcomes us to receive the great benefit of the sacrifice of Christ. Dear friends, don't let this be just a dead, dry ritual for you. But come to the table in faith in the Son of God whose body was broken and whose blood was shed. Amen.